Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark LaLiberty, and joining me today is... Corey, the distracted knocker. <laughs> You'll probably hear me sure, get a call sure. from my daughter on this, sure, this sure. call, sorry. <laughs> on today's episode, we're going to discuss the latest executive order out of the White House, this time involving digital assets, as well as some very thorough, in-depth research from Mandiant on the workings of APT41, a Chinese uh, pseudo-state-sponsored hacking organization. And we'll round it out on a quick discussion on vulnerability research and what organizations can do to better the chances of having a good interaction with some of these researchers. Now with that, let's go ahead and shimmy on in. So just this last week, there was a pretty exciting, I mean, I guess for some of us, exciting executive order that came out of the White House, where basically it, so it was, what is executive order on ensuring responsible development of digital assets, which is a giant mouthful of basically the White House. By is, the way, if you don't, we're, we're about to get into what that means, but executive order on ensuring responsible development of digital assets i mean once once the audience learns what the topic is i mean what 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 could that be digital assets do they mean securing iot do they mean securing computer i mean we'll tell you President in a second biden wants nfts <laughs> yeah but but it just seems like a very generic title for something that will be a very specific topic when we get into it i guess wait a second are you saying that Something coming out of the federal government is boring and plain vanilla. I, I just don't get why they just didn't say cryptocurrency or digital money instead of digital assets. To me, digital assets has way too many meanings and you won't realize that they're talking about cryptocurrency until you actually read the damn thing. Yep, I'm with you on that. And so as Corey just said, this is an executive order basically establishing a the outline of the U.S. federal government's belief and response and basically their buy-in to digital assets going forward like it basically by digital a assets they cryptocurrency. mean forms of di digital money primarily cryptocurrency yep. <laughs> so it starts out by first just recognizing all the explosive growth around cryptocurrency uh pointing out that in november 2016 uh the total market capital for all cryptocurrencies was around uh, $14 billion. And just five years later, in November 2021, it was up to $3 trillion. Um, and they also recognize that outside of the United States, many countries are starting to introduce uh, what they call central bank digital currencies or CBDCs. I'm going to ruin that acronym at some point in time. <laughs> <I know>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And if you're the type of person that says CBD, it's probably confusing. Yeah. Not CBDs, CBDCs. <laughs> yeah. I guess that's why they didn't just call it cryptocurrency because they wanted to give the, their legit version of it a special name. Exactly. A bank, a bank backed digital currency. Yep. So basically like they they've noticed that other countries are starting to adopt cryptocurrency in some form or another. Like I think Venezuela has their own coin that isn't actually doing so hot right now. Um, quite a few others as well. And basically the US is saying, wait a minute. You know, we're usually on the technical forefront of innovation, and maybe it's time that we hop on this bandwagon. And so it notes that, you know, there's still many activities involving digital assets um, that are within the scope of exi existing laws and regulations. But like because the growth of the industry is just skyrocketing, they really need to actively evolve our regulations and rules to keep up with it. And so the executive order sets the policy that it is in the United States' interest to support financial innovation and reduce the cost of domestic and cross-border funds transfers. Basically, right now, to send a wire transfer from the U.S. to England, it might cost you tens or hundreds of dollars. I don't know. It's a banana, Michael. How much could it actually cost? Um, but with cryptocurrencies, like it's, oh, I say effectively free. There are transaction fees still when you interact with most of the blockchains. They can't actually add up with some of the popular ones. But in general, they can and generally are orders of magnitude cheaper than a traditional wire transfer. Um, so they basically they say they're on board with digital assets 
And their focus now is going to be on reducing risks that digital assets pose to consumers, investors, and businesses, uh, while also um, combating financial crimes that involve digital assets. Um, and Biden also wants to uh, increase the stability of cryptocurrencies, uh, preventing the fi financial crimes, and basically says that they're entertaining the idea of a central bank-backed digital cryptocurrency for the United States as well. So, I mean, this, the writing's been on the wall for quite a bit, it feels like. Um, like, you know, like with law enforcement agencies, they've been uh, starting to tackle cryptocurrency more in terms of fine, uh, uh, crimes. Uh, the SEC and uh, the Department of... Um, Department, wow, can't brain not functioning. Department of Money in the U.S., whatever the heck it's called, has been constantly iterating financial crimes rules around cryptocurrency, too. And it feels like, you know, the tide is finally pushed over the beach. And now the U.S. is just diving headfirst into this digital finance world. Yeah, I I'm pro it. I think if everyone's heard Soapbox or Pop Pop Corey talk about the technology and the idea around cryptocurrency or digital money is a good one that long term we're going to have. I mean, I think everyone knows money is a societal contract to go with the goods and services we provide to each other. So it, it can be anything. Uh, we live in a digital world. It makes total sense that money should be digital. It's just the idea of a decentralized currency while like being popular with libertarians that don't want anyone in any of their stuff. I think that's kind of a utopian idea that can't really exist, meaning that for people to have trust in something, for it to be stable and not go up and down, for it to be regulated, and I know that some people think regulation is a bad word and maybe there's, there is over-regulation, but we know for a fact cryptocurrencies are easy to abuse for malicious uses. So the regulation, I think every country in the world realizes you need to regulate financial institutions. And just for people to trust it, you know, I think you and I, or at least I've always said that you need to have a digital currency that's backed by a institution that people trust. And in most cases, that's a government. Uh, central banks sound good too, because especially if you're a big central bank, like if Visa or MasterCard, by the way, is big payment vendors, you know, so back to digital currency is not surprising. And to me, this is a sign of it finally maturing. All the experimentation going on with crypto that, yeah, sure, it's resulted in things going up really fast and people getting rich, but then everyone else losing money when it goes down. It's been exciting and interesting, but for this to be a real world thing, I think you need this. So not surprising to see the US. So I guess the only thing surprising is we know they're slow. Uh, so so kudos to them for moving on this. Yeah. I also wonder if the conflict happening around the world, specifically Russian-Ukraine war, uh, obviously we are doing traditional financial sanctions that are really affecting some adversaries who are turning to cryptocurrency. And I think this is also government's way of getting control over those financial assets too. You know, whether good for bad, I know some people don't like government control. So the executive order is actually, it's pretty big and verbose of like laying out the, at least the, the foundation that they're gonna try and build this off of. And it sets out a few objectives. Like, so the goals for the federal government should be to protect consumers and investors and businesses within the United States, to protect US and global financial stability, and mitigate systemic risk. So basically, just like you were saying with the fluctuations we're seeing in cryptocurrency, in general, that is not good for a global um, financial yeah. system. So mitigating that's important. I don't want to go to McDonald's one day and pay five Bitcoin for a burger in the next day. By the way, five Bitcoin. Freaking <laughs> A, that would be an expensive burger. But you know what I mean. Uh, a, a five uh, Corgi coin for a burger one day and then come back the next day and it's 272 Corgi coin. That would, that's just, it's not <laughs> long-term viable. Yeah, 100%. Um, they also want to make sure that they mitigate the risk of illicit finance uh, and national security risks posed by the misuse of digital assets, something they've been working on for quite some time even before this. Uh, they want to reinforce the U.S.'s leadership in the global financial system, including in the development of payment innovations. So basically, like I said earlier, 
they want to be at the forefront of this and driving the narrative yeah. instead of falling behind. This other makes countries. sense. It's it's going to happen, right? And no matter what you think about, if it should be backed or decentralized or centralized or what what type of technology, digital money feels like a foregone conclusion. So that's cool to to be on the forefront and not a laggard. Yep. And the last two objectives were promoting access to a safe and affordable financial service. And also support technological advances that promote responsible development of digital assets. So again, basically, they're going all in on this one. And throughout the executive order, they highlight a bunch of things like, you know, working with a bunch of different government agencies to establish, okay, can we set up a CBDC? If so, what will that look like? What are the risks? Uh, what are the actual implementation methods that we need to go through in order to make it successful? like calling on government agencies to work with their counterparts internationally to make sure that whatever we design works internationally too and is kind of standardized as well. Like, yeah, it's cool seeing this all. In I, I I even like the, you know, you knew, you did all the cool objectives, but some of their objectives even mean being in line with democratic values and privacy protection. Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm not a, I, of course, love my country, the U.S., but to me, democracies are all kinds of countries that support it. So just, you know, they it seems like their intention is in the right place. Yeah. So the bulk of it is basically just stating their new objectives and what the policy is going to be, at least for this administration, recognizing this is a executive order. And if the administration changes, it could be wiped out in a second. Yeah, but <laughs> not a lot. <laughs> but I mean, for now, at least, like they seem to be saying they're on board. And they want to start entertaining the idea of like, what does a United States dollar crypto coin look like? And even outside that, just in terms of interacting with cryptocurrencies and digital assets in general, like what can our federal government do to help facilitate that and make sure that it's safe? Like one of their sections even calls out specifically combating a lot of the fraud and abusive acts that you see around cryptocurrency right now with some of these like celebrity backed pump and dump schemes that you see all over the place so it's kind of a it's it's cool seeing them like i mean i'm a little concerned because it's basically a bunch of 70 and 80 year olds that are going to be defining the the standards <laughs> hopefully so their teams hopefully <laughs> the teams under the leadership have much younger. yes if i'm if i'm worried about anything it's just the bureaucracy of government i am actually sure that they have experts that are the right age and have the right understanding but now you're going to bring in people of many parties, you know, all kinds of government institutes. And whether you think government is good or bad or regulation is good or bad, it definitely adds bureaucracy. Uh, so I, you're, you're right that things can happen. So what do you think? But that... I'd like to think it's more than just the 70 year olds guessing. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd hope so. Or maybe. The, yeah. Um, so what do you think you're I mean, actually pausing for a second? I still have like horrible nightmare memories of like all those depositions on, from Congress against the like the heads of the IT companies like Facebook, Google and whatever. Yeah. And just the complete like like ignorance of how so many of these technological systems work. To keep hope, man, I just have to imagine that 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 congressman, even the idiot one has a team of 40 people in their office that are all face palming their own congressman's <laughs> words at the same time because they know they wrote up a nice brief for him or her to do and he just went off on his own tangent and didn't read. so to keep myself hopeful i have to assume yeah there does seem to be some congressmen that don't know every subject but to be fair there's so many subjects they deal with let's hope that the big teams they all have under them Actually, under the ones actually writing the bill, not just the face that's put on the bill. Those people, hopefully, are, or in this case, an executive order. And hopefully, they know, know their crap. Yeah, hopefully. So, what do you think? Like the impacts are going to be on like ransomware and exchange hacking. Like, it, is there this thing now? Like, one of the futures I can envision is the United States comes out with the U.S. dollar crypto coin and then outlaws all other cryptocurrencies somehow. I mean, yes, you can't outlaw a distributed system, but you can prevent exchanges in the United States from allowing you to transact with them. Like, is this the death of 
Monero or Ethereum or I, no, I don't. I don't think so. Immediately, you know, I'm with you that they technically could make it hard. I, I don't think. First of all, they can't really outlaw it. It's a decentralized currency. People can use it. It's more that they could start to put controls to make it much and much harder for it to be used in our country in in different ways. But uh, what what I see happening is all the existing currencies will continue. Uh, they probably will be continued to use for legitimate purpose, but plenty of malicious purpose too. But my hope would be whatever the the central bank or state-sponsored digital asset or currency becomes, 90%, I'm, I'm pulling numbers out of my bum, as I'm sure you can guess, but say 95% of the US, that just becomes the currency. And everyone using the other currencies, those are 5% that... I don't know. Either they're super libertarians and just hate the government or they're they are the malicious actors. So I think what you might see is less and less legitimate transactions on the currencies that exist. I've seen studies both ways, right, where cryptocurrencies today, as they are, actually are used quite a bit legitimately. I sometimes question that because sometimes it might be a legitimate purchase, but it still could be actually washing stolen funds. But, but either way, let's assume it is plenty legitimate. I believe some of that legitimate transaction will just naturally move to the state-sponsored one if they solve the exact problems we're talking about. Transaction times that take milliseconds, uh, you know, no huge payments for transactions on top of the cost, uh, you know, stable currency where prices don't fluctuate every minute, let alone every second. If they solve those, Legitimate transactions will naturally go to the the backed one, in my opinion, because not everyone is the libertarian that is wants to evade taxes or or just thinks the government is lying to them in every way. So, but I don't think the bad ones will go away. They just they might become more the malicious side of things, even if they're not totally malicious today. And I think like just by nature, uh, a government backed cryptocurrency will solve a lot of those usability issues. Like realistically, this isn't going to be something like a, one of these distributed public ledgers like Ethereum and Bitcoin where everyone gets to interact. Anyone can be a miner on it. It will probably be a private ledger where, you know, U.S. backed banks like the the Federal Reserve will have their own um, not even mining. It probably won't even be proof of work. It'll probably no be something like proof all. of yeah. stake where it solves a lot of the issues yeah. in that, you know, as long as it's central, it will be centralized. They will have control over it. Um, but by doing so, there's no longer this, you know, you have to spend thousands of dollars in electricity to solve complex math just to get something added to the blockchain, which will in turn reduce costs and speed up transaction times. Yeah. And it, it will still keep the cryptographic benefit, though, of supposedly being immutable. The only difference is every user may not be able to see it, right? The, the, a public ledger today is supposed to be immutable and every one of us can go look at it. You know, the drawback of this one would, like you say, by being centralized and not decentralized, it, it still has all the maths that, that make it immutable, but you might not, you know, you will have to go to the backing institute to see the transactions. To exactly. The and then it just, instead of trusting the the public ledger and the, the uh, distributed nature of it to keep it immutable, you have to just trust the institution and... You know, the U.S. Federal Reserve is currently the most trusted financial institution in the whole dang world. So that's not that big of a to me, a normal there. person. Yeah, I, I do. Like what I do suspect is some the people that started <laughs> cryptocurrency, I believe, are the type of libertarians that don't trust even the most trusted. So but that that, that to me, I just can't compute that. I, I get the utopian idea that, you know, or the even the true idea that governments can go bad. But I think it's a utopian hypothesis to somehow think that decentralized is going to be better that just it, that that makes it instead of having to worry about one entity that you used to trust becoming untrustworthy you have to worry about every single entity you are interacting with in a decentralized currency could be untrustworthy but to the everyday person i could see something like this being pretty beneficial like especially if they roll it out as a stable coin basically something that just uh, tracks its value to the value of the U.S. dollar. Like one coin is always one dollar. Period, and then it basically just becomes a way to transfer money uh, cheaper than going through bank wire transfers and potentially significantly quicker. Like our banking system, like SWIFT, 
was built in the 19 what like 70s 80s like forever ago to the point where it's still maintained by COBOL developers uh, just to keep these things mainframes on online. It's actually impressive how fast we can still do financial transactions with how like COBOL my goodness. But the thing is archaic and so like an entirely new system like this that could enable full international cross-border transactions at you know a cheap cost and effectively instantaneous would be massively beneficial to the population. But that said, like there are still some pretty significant issues that cryptocurrency has to solve. Like one of the big ones that people tend to ignore or not realize is like in when it comes to like uh, your estate, like if I if I pass away, my bank account gets willed to uh, whoever had my will um, and the bank just, you know, transfers ownership to that new person and they're able to have my money, all my assets, all that. With cryptocurrency, though, if I don't give someone like the password to my key? private key, yeah, it's done. It's gone forever. Like those coins are no longer usable. So it'll be interesting to see how they solve that potential problem. Yeah. And and the, the, by the way, the vice versa, I think if you agree, is if you take away that strong private key, the password to it, that's really a big part of the the thing I'm I'm taking super high level, the, the mass, the cryptography, that really is what helps make it immutable. So it's kind of a rock in a hard place. I mean, there are some I think everyone to it. This has, like uh, Ethereum has like multi-signature wallets, they call them, where basically multiple people can authorize transactions. Um, I'm betting they do something similar to that. You, then you can effectively have a key in like escrow somewhere at a bank or institution that you trust. So that when you pass yep. away, they pair that. But they have then it, it yep. starts to get pretty dang complex. And like you said, it does reduce the security of now having multiple keys capable of doing it. It's still probably more secure than, you know, cash in my wallet or under my mattress, but for sure. I got to tell you, Mark, the one thing I feel like I've everyone's introspective, or at least I was in the pandemic. I I have libertarian tendencies. All of us want to think of us ourselves as people that could survive just with us, but it's okay to trust other people. <laughs> I mean, society, that everything we've built is built on we already have lawyers that we entrust our wills to, that we give tons of power to help transfer traditional assets to our our kids. And if we didn't actually, you know, so it, it's, it's funny that cryptocurrency was built on, I can't trust anybody, so I need to be able to system that's super resilient and the only person that can have access to me to a realization that, yeah, you want to build a digitally resilient cryptographic system that's good, but it is sometimes okay to trust. It's good to have dual key systems. It's good to, you know, I, I, I just think it's not a bad thing. Your your solution for, for it that Ethereum uses sounds like a good one. Yep. So either way, though, uh, the executive order, it's somewhere on the order of like 90 to 120 days when some of these initial reports back from the government agencies are supposed to be uh, on like the feasibility of this. It won't even be it will be at least a year, potentially several years before anything even becomes like prototype or happens request yeah. for comment stage, I think. But it does seem like at least the current administration is fully on board with jumping into cryptocurrency. What a time to be alive. I forget what it was before. Yeah, it's cool. Uh, like you say, though, probably a long time before anything really comes from it. it. Makes me think, like, I feel like eight months ago, we talked about another executive order that at a high level sounded good, but it was just basically an order saying, we plan to do this. At some point, we should probably come back and see if they actually did anything. Right? I think that was the besides two release the executive, executive order. orders on securing critical infrastructure, starting with like utilities and oh, yeah. natural There's, gas, and then moving to energy in the wake yeah, of yeah. the uh, the whatever pipeline in the yeah. along these. Worth a worth a follow up. Yeah, maybe we'll dig <laughs> into that. The only downside to them is you know great ideas. I I can't wait to see something happen. <laughs> yeah. So this is another one of those great ideas. Can't wait to see something happen. Maybe a year from now, we'll do a follow-up and uh, catch everyone up to date on exactly where it's at. Um, so moving on, though, last week, Mandiant published a report on a breach investigation that they were in part of dating back to May of 2021 that targeted six U.S. government networks originating from APT41, which is a Chinese state-sponsored hacking organization. 
Uh, in all six of the intrusions, APT41 gained their initial access by exploiting vulnerabilities in internet-facing web applications, uh, using things like leveraging .NET deserialization attacks, uh, exploiting SQL injection, and directory traversal vulnerabilities to gain a foothold on that web server and then pivot and compromise the rest of the network. Uh, Mandiant was actually able to contain one of those instances where they gained initial ac access through the SQL injection vulnerability in a proprietary web application. But then two weeks later, APT41 recompromised the network through a previously unknown zero-day vulnerability in a commercial off-the-shelf application. Uh, looked like, honestly, I have no idea what the heck this app is for. It looks like something to do with animals based off the name, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, but what was the name again? I read it. Uh... That's the wrong mandate report. Either way. Uh, so uh, in the US herds yeah. application, USA herds. I, I interpret that as herding animals, and that's what we're going to go with. It's probably yeah, entirely off know. base. But by the way, before you keep going, a few things. One, you, you mentioned APT41. I, I think you said, uh, just so folks know, as, as Mark mentioned, it is a Chinese connected to state sponsored hacking organization. They do a lot of state sponsored attacks but i did find mandiant's previous report on them is interesting because they're a unusual state-sponsored group that that one uh the fbi actually has indicted five members and they look actually like so they they do state-sponsored stuff but they don't seem to be part of the government they seem to be private people contractors and uh, exactly like the NSA. contractors and they do personally motivated criminal money hacks too. Uh, they definitely do state-sponsored stuff, but they've used, uh, they leverage non-public malware, which means lots of uh, expertise, and part of the state-sponsored sophistication, but they've done financially motivated targeting and cybercrime as well. So they seem to be this new, I, I mean, that's the weird thing about some governments and their contractors, you know? Go Maybe after certain, our adversaries and we don't care what you do kind of thing. Yeah, it, it's not just going to a big business that does this in an organized way for a government and that's their work. They're going to folks that may just be cyber criminals too. The really. sweaty dudes in their basement approach. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't call them that. They're, they're obviously <laughs> sophisticated, probably more so than a normal cyber criminal, but it's like uh, they're probably making money beyond just doing what the government says. Is, is what the report, Manius report, sounds like. So interesting target or, or interesting uh, APT group. Yeah. So the report is thoroughly detailed. Uh, we'll make sure to link it in the show notes. Uh, but some of the high-level takeaways from it. So they noted that APT41 was quick to adapt to publicly disclose vulnerabilities when they're gaining access. Like, for example, they began exploiting the log4shell vulnerability within hours of its disclosure in December 2021 and successfully compromised at least two U.S. state governments, uh, as well as a few of the more traditional targets in the insurance and telecommunications industries using that flaw. Um, they successfully recompromised two previously compromised U.S. state government victims, uh, and just as recently as late February 2022, after the initial compromises towards the end of last year. Um, but still, uh, as of this report, Mandiant still says their goals are really unknown. Like they have, they've observed evidence of exfiltrating PII, uh, and which is consistent with like an espionage operation. But like you just mentioned, Corey, they tend to do a lot of financial related crimes too. So it really just seems like a, like a hands up, oh, a, you know, we'll turn a blind eye as long as you're going after our adversaries and maybe we'll buy some PII you steal from state governments off of you kind of operation. Um, the report goes through a lot of their techniques and again, in pretty thorough detail, uh, but for example, one of the attacks that they tend to favor is a deserialization attack against ASP.NET-based web apps. Um, so ASP.NET has this feature or object, I guess, called ViewState, which is basically a way for the web server and the web browser uh, to maintain a state of exactly like the contents of the user's session. Like, for example, are they authenticated? If so, are they an administrator or normal user? What is the contents of this form they're filling out? All of this is stored in this state object that the server validates. And can we can yeah. we pause? I, I think you're going to go right into the ASP.NOT thing, but just to make sure, you know, I'm, some of our users or listeners probably know this, but deserialization attacks 
can affect many different yeah. uh, platforms. So serialization is just the the process of taking some object and putting it into a data format that can be restored later. Yep. And the data format could be JSON, XML, blah, 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 lots of data formats. And deserialization is, of course, the reverse of that process, taking that data structure and rebuilding it into the original object. But in general, when Mark, when you say it's a deserialization attack, you know, basically all the parsing and mechanisms to turn it into something or turn it back from something can be leveraged in the way a lot of web application issues can be leveraged to do things like anything from denial of service to remote code execution even. even. So just wanted to make sure people understood the generic deserialization attack before getting into the more specific one, which you should yeah. continue explaining. So in general, with, so this, starts with, with this view state function, think of it as like a key value store where if I'm on a ASP.NET website, there's this view state object and it has things like username is Mark and administrator is true uh, and login time is blah, blah, blah. And anytime you interact with the site, your browser sends that object back to the server and it validates it using a message authentication code or a Mac. And that Mac is cryptographically signed with a key that exists on the server. Um, in ASP.NET, it's called the machine key. It's stored in a special specific configuration file. Um, but basically, if someone is able to get a hold of that machine key, then they can uh, correctly sign their own view state objects and the server will accept them. They'll validate as true because they're signed with the key they're expecting. And so Mandiant found that APT41 was able to compromise the machine key through a directory traversal attack against the server, basically on the web page, getting it to load up a file that it shouldn't have outside of its web directory and then signed their own uh, view state objects with valid Macs. And they did that to deploy a JScript web shell through that object. So instead of the normal key value store, when the, the web server went to deserialize this object and validate the message, it actually was able to deploy and inject a web shell into the website, which gave them that kind of backdoor into there. Um, pretty nuts, and it's actually a really common style of vulnerability against web applications, especially ASP.NET and PHP-based ones because they do a lot of this server-validated and signed interactions with clients. And if you're doing deserialization wrong or if someone's able to compromise the in like, cryptographic integrity of the, the process, integrity. then yeah. they can do basically whatever the heck bye they bye. want. Um, like the log for shell vulnerability was technically a deserialization vulnerability where the attacker injects a special string and when the server, the vulnerable server, goes to deserialize it, it goes and reaches out and grabs a malicious Java object and loads it and executes it. Um, and so uh, they, this vulnerability was in an in a off-the-shelf one. They also had another attack against that same off-the-shelf commercial application. Uh, where I think all, they're talking. I think they specifically mean the U.S. heard one yeah, when they're talking this about one, these ones, right? Yeah, uh, this vulnerability was that US herd application. All installations used the exact same static machine key. Basically, it was hard coded in the program instead of randomly generated on installation, which meant if you, as APT41, were able to get your hands on any one of those keys, you could then sign messages that would be accepted by this application anywhere. Um, they exploited Log4Shell, like we said, to deploy backdoors. Um, they used a tool, I'd love the name of this one, called Bad Potato. Uh, to <laughs> elevate their privileges uh, and then copy different registry hives as a way of credential harvesting. Um, they did uh, Active Directory reconnaissance using a tool called DS Query. Uh, they had an in-memory uh, dropper that decrypts and loads encrypted payloads into memory. Uh, and in most cases, they were using that to drop Cobalt Strike beacons. Um, some of their malware had anti-analysis techniques, so they used a tool called VM Protect. And then not only did they do that, they went and chunked the resulting binary into multiple files. And it was only right before execution that they had a script that would go through and recombine these files into a single DLL and inject it and execute it. Uh, they used a process card called guard railing, which is basically ensuring that this malware only executes on the intended target system. Uh, they've actually changed how they did guard railing throughout the, the attack. They started by... Uh, using the victim computer's volume serial number, uh, but then they ended up switching to using host names and DNS domain names. So basically, 
they'd check to see if it was the intended target. And if it wasn't, it wouldn't execute at all. That's a good way to avoid detection and hamper analysis as well. And by the way, just since you mentioned Happer and I like you threw out VM protect. I'm sure everyone knows that it, if they're in security, but just for some idea of what that, like honestly, that it's active, it's anti-cracking software. It's software that was made for real legitimate software developers to basically taking the executable and uh, it, it doesn't necessarily encrypt the executable, but it, it, it makes it micro virtualizes it so that it's hard for reversers to just see the machine language of what the executable does without some work. Really was made to, to, to combat software pirates, really. But guess what? Software pirates use reversers to analyze code to find something that they can hook in and thus crack a protection, which is exactly what security researchers would be in if they're trying to figure out how malware works. So, so just when we say VM protect, it, it, it protects binaries from reverse analysis. Yep. Uh, when it came to command and control channels, uh, they used uh, they fetched command and control addresses from encoded data on a unspecified public forum. So a good example of this is it's actually pretty common for malware these days to use Reddit as a command and control mechanism because anyone can go create a subreddit, basically a forum page, and post whatever they want to it. And so you can have malware that just goes and looks up a subreddit, looks for the latest post, decodes it, and then uses that to generate its next C2 address. Um, they didn't explicitly say Reddit in this, that just some unnamed public forum, but I'm willing to bet it's that based off of its common, owl, common use across a lot of malware. Um, it gained persistence with scheduled tasks, as well as malicious imports to the import address table of legitimate PE binaries. Basically, it would inject itself as a library for other applications to load up as a form of persistence. Uh, it would set up inbound listening access on these web servers. It's disguised as a CSS file, so a templating file for a website where if you're analyzing web traffic, it just looks like someone's loading up another file off your site. But in reality, this was a communication channel for the application. And then to exfiltrate data, it basically just encoded it, chunked it up, and then stuck it on as a subdomain for some parent domain and sent a ping out to that. And the domain was hosted on Cloudflare. And so the attackers could just view the access logs on Cloudflare, get a list of all the subdomains that are reporting back, and uh, de-encode them in order to view whatever the data is they were exfiltrating. Long story short, there's a ton of detail. And it was really interesting seeing uh, in detail the inner workings of this APT. If, if I were to high level what all of what Mark said, I find every single technical detail interesting. But if some of it was like, Greek to you, really, really sophisticated, really evasive. Like this isn't typical criminal noisy malware that you know, might not might try to be a little evasive, but does silly things. They're they're going to lots of different efforts to to do pretty good attacks. By the way, one thing I wanted to to comment on is I think you mentioned uh, Cobalt Strike. You know, uh, the 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 in memory dropper that actually exploits Cobalt Strike. For those that don't know. Cobalt Strike is a more commercial paid exploit framework like Metasploit. Uh, and something that I, I think about and we talk about, both Cobalt Strike and Metasploit were made for the good guys. They were actually made for red teams, like legitimate comp sci, you know, security teams to act like attackers to basically learn from them, improve theories and fix things. And yet they're used so much by malicious actors. They're not, you know, I don't think you can argue you that Metasploit or Cobalt Strike are used more by the good guys. We see them all the time in malware. And it makes me think, should like uh, the security industry, I'm pro these tools for the good guys. They do have a, a very good legitimate use, but should Cobalt, I, I guess it's probably a pirated version of Cobalt Strike being used, but... Well, I mean, not necessarily. Like, if we look at the Conti uh, ransomware gang leaks that came out, they actually licensed a legitimate copy of Cobalt Strike for their operations. And, and that's what I'm getting at. Should folks like Rapid7 and the Cobalt Strike makers, do they need to start watermarking their binaries to customers? And, like, if... If bad actors start using their tools with some watermark in the tool, I, like I'm sure that will become a new cat and mouse game as far as trying to hide the watermark or pirating. 
But is there some culpability? You know, I, I support these tools. I think they should exist. But it kind of, it, it makes me feel dirty, in Conti's case, even worse, if we know the bad actor paid for it and is using it for bad things. Is there any responsibility for the makers of these powerful tools to at least put a watermark to just protect their own liability so that they can have in their EULA, you know, if we see this watermark in malicious activity, we're going to, you know, we're going to cut off you off as a customer at the very least until we learn why. Yeah. So just something I thought I, it's random compared to the very interesting report that we really want to talk about. But it did make me think seeing Cobalt strike yet again. It's definitely an in, interesting point. And it is very much a gray area. Like we, uh, I feel like we're justified in poo-pooing on some of the, like the NSO groups exploits that they use because they're actively targeting um, like journalists around the world. But I, I have to admit as a security researcher, I do tend to like, Err a little more on the side of acceptance for things like uh, metas metasploit, and cobalt strike, and metasploit. I, to be quite clear, I I don't want either of those to go away. I think they're very useful tools, and they're and by the way, both of them, or at least metasploit has a community edition, and I think cobalt strike has a trial. So it's 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 different, like you say, than the NSO group, in my opinion. And yet it just seems so clear that they're being heavily used by bad guys. And it feels like there's very low bar mechanisms that they could at least track when a customer is using it in a bad way and make it harder for that particular customer to purchase. hundred um, percent. Highly, I'll link, make sure we link to this report though. A lot of technical detail in there and also some good just takeaways on how you can defend against some of this stuff. It basically, it boils down to you really do need not just layers of security, but layers of advanced security to catch a lot of these threats. Like it took Mandiant a bunch of digging to catch a lot of these, but like at a, at a high level, like web application firewall can help with some of the exploits as web application servers, ensuring that you install the latest patches is like step zero, because as these vulnerabilities are discovered, some of these threat actors like APD 41 are jumping on them almost immediately. Uh, and then just good anti-malware protections to round out the back to try and catch some of these uh, evasive payloads that they're dropping on systems. Uh, to the nerds like Corey and I, super interesting write-up and highly recommend checking it out. Uh, so moving on real quick for one last bit on this podcast. Um, just last week, HackerOne published a survey uh, where they asked a bunch of organizations some vulnerability and bug bounty related questions to uh these companies and you know these these surveys i tend to take them with a massive grain of salt because you know they're for marketing purposes but there were a couple of really interesting stats out of it that kind of stood out to me um there were like the you know the basic ones that you'd expect to see like did you have a security breach as a result of sidestepping security measures and so and so forth but there's two that i really wanted to talk about where 67 percent of the organizations that they surveyed said that they would rather accept a software vulnerability than work with hackers. And this is in the context of both like a bug bounty program and even just working with researchers that report into a company. And that kind of blew me away that like that, that borders borderlines on like negligence, I feel like of just, oh, you know, there are potentially vulnerabilities, but we don't want to work with hackers. Can, can we stop here? Because just before we get to the next stat in that, I think this is why I think surveys can sometimes be misleading. And what is the definition of hackers? And do you think the average person thinks of it the way hacker one thinks of it? And just for pop pop quarry background, which Mark and everyone in security, hackers was not a bad thing when it first was introduced. It was the MIT Railroad Club. It was people that thought out of the box that were technically savvy and found really unusual solutions, found ways to use technology that it wasn't originally designed for. It's, it doesn't mean criminal or it didn't. It didn't mean criminal. But I would argue today, nowadays, hackers means criminal. You know, whether or not that was the intention of the InfoSec community or not, whether that was because of journalists and people, 99% of the time when I hear a non-InfoSec person say a hacker, they typically mean a bad guy, a criminal, someone doing malicious things. And I, I personally believe HackerOne has their name because they 
they think of hacker in the old school way. I think even my bio says that uh, I previously considered myself as a hacker in the old school sense of the word. And I, I don't, to them, a hacker is a security researcher that may not be doing anything criminal at all. But one of the things I wonder by this stat is I agree with you. It's unacceptable, like taking researchers, researchers that aren't doing crimes, they just know how to red team. They know how to find vulnerabilities in products. They know web applications. They know software reversing. Taking good guys that aren't breaking any laws to figure out vulnerabilities in your software so that you can fix them, that's all good to me. But I think people like, of course, there are criminals that have those capabilities. And I kind of, from a moral perspective, agree that I don't want to hire a criminal to do that for me. There are plenty of really good guy researchers that that's their job and they're good people. So I just wonder if this was just the stupid use of hackers. Does hacker one think that everyone believes they're dead? Like to me, their their hackers are legitimate researchers. They really are security researchers, right? I mean, as far as I know, they do lots to actually background check them and make sure these aren't illicit criminals there. So to me, hacker one's hackers are are just security researchers. So I, I just wonder if it was just misunderstanding on that one term. Yeah, I guess without seeing the the actual like I could see, you know, a a, a pop pop Corey style executive saying, oh, I don't want to work with hackers, whereas it was in reality researchers. But I'm saying I I, I would be okay to work yes. with hackers because I realize in this context they mean researchers. Correct. <laughs> um but I guess that is a good point. But like if we swallow our grain of salt um, and assume that they potentially understood. That's still a pretty sizable portion of organizations that don't. But, but why? What, if if they did understood, why? Why would you not be willing to work with the security researcher to find vulnerabilities and fix them? I can them? see, like, so based off some of the other questions and responses they had, I saw an interesting trend of it felt like a lot of the companies they queried would rather bury their head in the sand, effectively, basically security by ignorance. That's that's the suck. That's the sucky part. That would be my fear. And the only thing I could think of that is logical, but it's not logical. I mean, like these are good guys. You should work with them. And so you not knowing be, about a flaw besides, doesn't make it go away. No, it's there. And it's probably going to bite you even harder when it's found out that you you buried your head instead of. So I, I personally think that's kind of dumb if that is their reasoning for the answer. 100%. And I, I guess I guess the, the next question, though, might be the next part. The only other thing is I do see that there's a level, and I don't think of this of hacker one ones because that is a very organized place where you can help control price and control who works on your stuff. But I do see a trend, I think we both have seen as people that deal with rapid response for our company, the type of quote unquote researcher that isn't acting as a criminal hacker, but they almost extort you. You know, it's not just hey, I found a flaw and I'd like to report it to fix it. It's like, hey, I found a flaw. Are you going to pay me for it? If not, I'm leaving. <laughs> and that that I get. You know, they may not be criminal good guys, but any researcher can't expect someone to just want that. You know, if I go to Hacker One and I request them to work on it, I'm ready to pay them. But just because you found something doesn't mean you're a good guy when you try to extort someone to pay you for it. If, you, if you're going to not wait for them to come to you, you should at least realize that if you're going to disclose something, you should just disclose it freely. So that's a good segue. Or, or wait for them to come to HackerOne. Yeah, into the ahead. second Sorry, the stat that they had, which was 50% of hackers have not disclosed a bug because of a previous negative experience or lack of channels through which to report. And there's a bit to unpack from here. Like first off, all organizations should have something to make it easy to report a vulnerability to them, or at least attempt to. I know like there's kind of a pseudo standardized security at company name alias that a lot of researchers will try out that and like privacy at uh, domain.com. But really, you want to make it easy for some of these researchers to report something to you or at least try to. Um, and then when you do work with them, like, yes, it is very difficult to deal with ones that are borderline extortion right out of the gate. But there are still a sizable population of just researchers out there that like breaking things, like researching stuff, like finding vulnerabilities, and then want to work with you to get them fixed. And you got to make sure that you don't treat them with hostility when they're trying to help report a vulnerability to your organization. 
Like I follow a ton of vulnerability researchers on Twitter, and it feels like every week there's another story of one of them trying to work with a company and were met with open hostility, in some cases threatened with litigation for even yep. trying to find the flaw uh, responsibly. That shouldn't exist today. We've talked about it, but like the whole reason full disclosure, not responsible, but just outright full disclosure and the aggressive kind where they do it right away exists is because shoot 20 years ago now that's how even microsoft treated researchers right people would come to them for free say we found this big problem we'd like to tell you about and not extort not even ask for money just try to say i want you to see and fix this problem and companies like microsoft made their life heck uh Microsoft, by the way, has since very much changed. And I think Microsoft has adopted what what this is talking, what you're talking about is a company respecting the research, understanding even if the even if they're asking for money rubs you the wrong way, treat them well, uh, appreciate the fact that they're reporting vulnerabilities. You know, I think we replied to everyone saying thank you. Like we always like to learn vulnerabilities on our product to help protect our customers. So we appreciate this. So it, it just should be 101 by now, but you're right. Some people don't get it. So yet. even recognizing that we should treat all marketing surveys with a giant basket load of salt. Um, in this, this case, like there's still some good takeaways of if you are a company that has a vulnerability disclosure process, make sure you've designed it in a way that's easy for researchers to get a hold of you. And if someone does come to you, even if you don't have a program in place, don't default to hostility. Uh, but at the same time, you know, it's totally okay to crack down on an extortion if it does come to that. And like Corey said, as one of the people responsible for our own vulnerability disclosure process, those unfortunately do seem to be ramping up more and more lately. Um, so, I, I mean, man, it's tough to even say the solution to that. I know bug bounty programs are a good way to at least legitimize some of these requests. But at the end of the day, it just boils down to treat researchers with respect. Uh, where and as long as respect is given back to you because they are trying to work with your company to make your product better. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at XORRO underscore. Corey is at Secadept. And the both of us are at hashtag the 443 podcast. Thanks again for listening, and you will hear from us next week.